Well, I'm a pretty daggy person most of the time, so today's no different. So I've just got a plain white t-shirt. I still, to be honest, have my pyjama pants on and a scrunchie, so nothing glamorous, really. <laughs> but isn't it funny? Scrunchies have made a comeback. Yeah. I mean, I feel like they're a lot healthier in your hair, to be honest, so <laughs> that's what I'm sticking with. And are you at your house? Yes, in my bedroom, so the most quiet area of my house, really. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader and I've been in the fire and come out the other side. I had a panic attack live on television. <laughs> yep, a few years ago. And the funny thing is of the hundreds, possibly even thousands of people I've interviewed over the years, confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. Rachel Sarah's art is definitely having a moment. You'll see it on the side of buses, buildings, on the official team uniform of the Firebirds, in the packaging of Lush Cosmetics, on postage stamps and even at the entrance of more than a dozen Kmart stores. You know, stepping out into different environments that kind of made me question where I sort of sat in the world. Her art tells the story of being a proud Indigenous woman, but it's her personal story of becoming, she shares with us today, of figuring out her place as she straddled two worlds. There was always this idea of what Aboriginality was. And, you know, to me, I didn't fit that image of what Aboriginality was. Navigating the pitfalls of social media. It's addictive, right? It was made to be addictive. So, And processing systemic and casual racism. Those sorts of comments seem innocent, but they really play on your sense of identity. And I had the great pleasure of being on a panel with Rachel recently at a talk we gave to high school students. And honestly, I was blown away by her wisdom and vulnerability. So here's rising star Rachel Sarah on claiming her confidence. Tell me, do you fill your home with your art or do you have other people's art in your home? Um, so I have a bit of everyone's art, actually. So I've got some of my own um, some of my brothers, um, some of my good friend, Jenna Lee, she has beautiful Larrakia language piece that she's gifted me um, and different people, um, ceramics and different resin artworks, really. So I'm still at mum and dad's while I'm, you know, building my house. So once I get into my house, I feel like it'll be just an explosion of different art. I'm more excited to kind of decorate my house than, you know, live in it really. <laughs> Yes, that's the same with me. You know, my dad is an artist and any time we moved home when I was little, before my dad would put our beds together, plug in the fridge, do anything practical, he would hang all the artwork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he has this philosophy like any piece of blank wall is an opportunity to hang art. So it begins from the skirting board and goes all the way up to the yes, ceiling. Exactly. I feel like art obviously just gives you um, your home a a different personality to, you know, makes us all unique. 
Now let's go back in time because you have the most extraordinary story of becoming and, and stepping into who you are today, which I know is an ongoing process, but you've come so far. So talk to me about your upbringing and who you thought you were and when you started to realise that, in fact, you, you started to embrace, I guess, being an Indigenous woman. I guess I'm a, I've always been a very proud grain-growing woman, but from a young age I didn't really understand what that meant. You know, I, I guess because I was exposed to my family's culture when I was around family, I, I felt like I belonged, but, you know, stepping out into different environments, it kind of made me question where I sort of sat in the world and, you know, who I was and what that identity meant. And, you know, even now I'm still kind of finding that out, but I grew up in Ipswich, so I've lived in Ipswich my whole life, but culturally I connect back to Bundaberg. So for Aboriginal people, it's a, it's a really big thing to have a connection to country. And so, when your connection to country is, you know, four or five hours away and you hardly get back there, there is something missing a lot of the time. And unless you really, you know, unless you are living off country, you don't fully understand, um, I guess, that feeling and the impact that it has on your, you know, um, your sense of place and belonging. So that was a real challenge growing up. But I feel like now, um, we're able to connect in different ways. And although you can't beat getting back on country, I feel like now in this modern world, there's ways that we can connect to our culture in different ways. So, yeah, I think, you know, from a young young age, I, yeah, was questioning everything and that questioning started from within. Yeah. Uh, would you mind explaining to me what what is it about being on country that speaks to who you are inside what 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 is it about is it a spiritual experience yeah the best way I would kind of um explain it would be you know if you're doing a puzzle and you've got one piece left and you know you can't find that piece to put in um it's kind of this incomplete feeling you know there's almost a whole picture there but there's still one little aspect that's not quite there and I think um, when you get back onto country, it's, you know, you're with your ancestors and I've always been a very spiritual person. So the idea that I feel like people are around me protecting me and I feel like that feeling is only heightened when I'm on country because I know, you know, my ancestors want the best for me and they'll protect me. And, you know, when you put your feet into the salt water up on, you know, growing, growing country, it's so refreshing and healing. And I think, yeah, it's just a it's a it's a feeling of feeling whole, I guess. So when you would return from those trips visiting your family and then you'd go back to school, mm-hmm. was that something did you feel like you had two different identities in a way? Did you were you able to talk to your friends about those feelings and about those experiences of being Aboriginal? Um look, I don't no, I don't think so. I feel like when I really only started understanding who I was probably you know even in my early 20s probably I've always known who I was but you know I feel like I was in environments where I was disconnected from people like myself Um, and even in the environments like school there was always this idea of what Aboriginality was and you know to me I didn't fit that image of what Aboriginality was and 
you know, I feel like now we've kind of evolved and, you know, our understanding is a lot better about the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But back then, you know, you only knew what was in the school curriculum and, like, my peers only knew what was in the school curriculum. So it was a lot about just Captain Cook and nothing about the rich culture of Aboriginal people. And so I definitely felt very um, disconnected and, you know, I, I had an exhibition last year um, and one of my pieces was about, you know, this regret and this guilt, I guess, of not spending enough time with my grandma because when I was younger, I was playing a lot of sport and so my weekends were filled up with, you know, playing basketball and training. So I never got that chance to go back on country. So when I kind of did, it was very overwhelming, but then coming back, it was kind of like a very hard shift because, you know, back then it wasn't as celebrated as what it is now. And that well, that's like only 10 years ago. So even within the last 10 years, because of social media and because we have this um, self-determining power through social media, you know, we can share and celebrate our culture and, you know, a lot more people are kind of engaging in that. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And I know that social media cops a lot of criticism and a lot of it is deserved. You know, it can create anxiety and comparison and all the rest of it, but it's also given um, so many people platforms who wouldn't have ordinarily had that opportunity to have a voice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, social media is a funny one, isn't it? Like there are... Yeah. The downsides, but I definitely feel like you're right. Like social media is a platform for people to share their voice and for people to connect on a scale that if it didn't exist, you know, we wouldn't be able to connect with these people. You know, even through social media, I've got really good friends who I would never have met in real life, but are such a pivotal kind of person in my journey and in my self discovery. So step us through the, uh, I guess, that process of self-discovery for you and the unfolding of that. You mentioned it was, there was a lot going on in your early 20s. What mm-hmm. what were some of those pivotal moments for you? Yeah, so I guess going through, I guess, my journey of where I am now, I feel like culture aside, there was a lot of uh, times where I needed to find myself when I was going through uni was probably one of the first times I had my first serious relationship and looking back that was a really unhealthy relationship Um, we weren't compatible and not to say that he was a bad person but it was a very pivotal time where I made a lot of sacrifices to try and make something work when you know that wasn't reciprocated and that also comes back on me in that I didn't know who I was so I didn't know what I wanted to stand for I didn't know what I would put up with and you know what I deserved or what I needed so um, going through uni I was kind of distracted in you know trying to make a bad relationship work and I didn't really enjoy university at the time I can remember being in my degree and you know hardly ever going to uni because it wasn't a system that really worked for me. I still needed to earn money and, you know, I was still playing sport quite competitively back then. But then I kind of went through phases, well, I don't want to do this degree. At the time I was doing visual communication design and, you know, mum said to me, well, if you don't know what you want to do, kind of just stick this out and then see how it goes. And then 
I kind of did and I graduated and I have some really good friends that I've met at uni who are, you know, amazing people and are still, you know, my closest friends. If I ever get married, they'll probably be bridesmaids. But then I kind of was in this big, bad world of the creative industry and, you know, I didn't know where to go next. And it was only, I think, the first job kind of didn't work out for me. And then, you know, second or third job into my um, career quite early on was with an Indigenous creative agency. And, you know, I learned a lot. I was able to connect with my culture, but I also learned a lot about who I was and, you know, the types of personalities that were compatible with me and what got the best out of me. And, you know, it wasn't the right fit then and kind of moved on to another agency job, um, which was also an Indigenous agency. And this idea of having an Indigenous agency to work with was, you know, exposure to culture and, you know, exposure to creating change. And that really, um, it was really powerful for me. It actually ignited something in me that I didn't know I needed. So, you know, I didn't feel whole as just a designer and I, I didn't feel whole as just an Aboriginal woman. But when I put the two together, I started to feel more like myself, um, which was, which is great. And then I guess it's just challenging moments like that where, you know, I feel like I'm rambling on here, but it's, it all kind of ties together to create, you know, where I am today and, you know, challenging environments where, you know, big personalities kind of tell you you can't do something um, just really ignited this passion within me to step out and, you know, prove that I could and um, really embrace who I was without this, you know, I guess, a filter on it, which was huge for me. So, yeah, that kind of brings me to working for myself now. Which is extraordinary. And your pieces are so beautiful, Rachel. Like, I'm, Thank you. I just love them. And your particular style is is unique. It's yours, and you describe yourself as a modern Indigenous artist. How did yeah. you How did you find your specific style and and I guess own it and celebrate it? Because I know that you have received a little bit of pushback from people saying, "Well, that's not traditional," or "That's not yeah. how it's done." <laughs> Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for me my work started out as this disconnect from the commercial world that I was working in. So I felt a lot of pressure to be something that I wasn't in the job that I was working. And, you know, it felt very unnatural for me. And I felt like more of a, more of a tool rather than a human being in certain instances, because I felt like at the time my voice and my skill set wasn't, you know, valued and it wasn't heard. So that kind of negative environment really pushed me to develop my own personal style. And, you know, that style stemmed from me just stepping out and being authentically who I am. And, you know, I can never be an Aboriginal woman who was raised 250 years ago, but I can be inspired by the strength and the resilience that my ancestors have, you know, given me. And, you know, those who have come before me have created opportunities for me now. But my style very much is about my experiences as a modern Aboriginal woman because growing up, like I said, I felt very disconnected because I couldn't see anyone who was like me. You know, I could see 
really remote Aboriginal communities, but they didn't represent who I was or my experiences. And it never felt right to act as if they were my experiences because the reality was they weren't. And I, you know, I had quite a privileged upbringing, having the opportunity um, to go to a private school and to get an education, but there was still this disconnect. So I guess my style kind of comes from representing someone who didn't exist for me when I was younger. And I think that alone can't exist and be the be all and end all, but that idea of putting out who you are and your experiences kind of encourages people, you know, to do the same. And it's more the sum of all of our diversity and that strength and that diversity that really tells a story. So I I would say that my style is just a very small part of a much bigger picture of, you know, our Aboriginal culture. It's still a really brave step forward though. And to be one of many who are taking those steps of being the first to express diversity in a really different way takes a huge amount of courage. And do you think it was a reflection of all of the work that you had done internally up until that point? Yeah, I definitely think that if I wasn't as comfortable in myself, um, actually, know what, you know, I feel like that's a bit of a lie. I kind of feel like it's the uncomfortableness that really is what's powerful with my work. I feel like it's that constant questioning of who I am because I don't think we'll ever be one person and stay that person our whole life. I think for me, the challenges that I face in life day to day, as well as the big picture challenges are really what allows me to be unique and to be kind of, um, you know, myself. And that art is, it's that expression of our individuality. And I don't think people can take away your experiences. So that authentic representation is what's powerful. I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence. Stick around because Rachel's about to share how she navigates the pitfalls of social media and decides what she will share with her 40,000 followers and the confidence challenge Rachel's working on right now. Do you mind if we talk about your experience of racism now? And please stop me, you know, if we ever go down any rabbit holes that you're like, you know what, I don't really want to talk about that. But you you did share some stories when we spoke to the high school girls uh, about mm-hmm. your experience of racism. Um, where, do you mind sharing with us where that began for you? What What age were you when you first became aware of that? I feel like my whole life, looking back, I've been exposed to casual racism. I think um, being a light-skinned Aboriginal woman, um, it obviously has its complexities and its privileges, but for me, I was always told that I wasn't Aboriginal because I had light skin, and those sorts of comments seem innocent, but they really play on your sense of identity and Like I said, our representation in school was, you know, not of the diverse Aboriginal people that we see today. It was a very specific 
type of Aboriginal person, which is, you know, just one aspect of who we are. Um, but then, of course, putting my work out on social media and being in public spaces really exposed me a lot to these comments and the questioning of my identity. And that's just one type of racism. I obviously am not the type of person that will walk down the street and be, you know, racially vilified because of my appearance. Because I always talk on this idea that I can hide in plain sight. I can walk down the street and be proudly Aboriginal internally and externally be completely disconnected from it. And, you know, that's not something that I do, but it's something that just comes with how I look. Um, so in certain spaces like that, it's it's such a privilege. But in other places where, you know, I'm really celebrating and talking about my culture, the other side is that I'm told I can't be who I am and I am not Aboriginal enough or I must be adopted, those sorts of things, you know, it really, it plays on your sense of identity in a way that you start to, you start to question, well, am I allowed to identify as Aboriginal? If all of these people are saying I can't be Aboriginal, does that mean I am? Like I'm, I'm not Aboriginal. I am just some fraud that's, you know, creating work and, you know, a lot of themes like imposter syndrome start to play on your mind and, you know, being gaslighted by other people um, in your environment kind of plays on your identity. So I would say from my experiences, I I experience, you know, racism in a different way than, you know, someone else. Um, and even my dad, when he was younger, would experience racism very differently to know what I'm experiencing and that's a the difference between our appearances but also b I guess the environment that I'm you know dancing in is this digital world so people have access to you 24 7 if you let them um so that's definitely been a real struggle for me there's a few things there that have come up for me that I really would love to ask you about. The first is you mentioned the word gaslighting mm -hmm. and when it's done in that way, which is in a really covert, mm -hmm. um, almost sneaky way, how do, you, how do you even figure out that that's what it is? You must have had moments where you're like, am I being overly sensitive or is that not okay? Or yeah. how did you get to the point where you were like, okay, well, this is not okay and this is actually racism? Yeah. I have been fortunate enough early on to um, have the opportunity to see a psychologist. So what I kind of learnt from that experience is, was kind of understanding how I was feeling and how other people were making me feel. Um, and so I guess for me, I've never really wanted to settle for not feeling okay in people's environments. Um, you know, early on, I guess it comes back to, you know, that bad relationship that I was in. It taught me that, you know, I need to be treated properly um, and not sacrifice my own well-being for other people. But this gaslighting when you're in kind of a digital world that you can't escape or in a professional setting that, you know, you can't escape because you need to get your paycheck, it, it, it definitely, it's hard because, and I guess the thing about gaslighting is for a long time you don't know what's happening to you, right? So it kind of was the fact that I started seeing that being pulled out in other people's experiences that I could recognize 
how it was actually affecting my own experiences, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I was able to see an example of that to be able to recognize what was happening in my own backyard. Yeah, extraordinary. And the other thing that I wanted to ask you is how are these people saying these things to you? Is it mostly now in comments or have, have people said these things to your face? A bit of both. So I remember one experience where I was walking out from, you know, a job interview and there was someone on the street kind of selling something and, um, you know, they were just having a casual conversation and I was quite young at the time and, you know, I, I would consider myself quite a um, a nice person in that I'd be willing to have a conversation with anyone. And so this person was obviously just doing their job and then it kind of got a bit personal where they were asking about my day and, you know, I kind of spoke about how I had a meeting with, you know, IBA, which is Indigenous Business Australia and so on. And they were like, oh, well, how can you do work with them? You're not Aboriginal. And I was like, well, first of all, how are you, like, how, who are you to kind of say that I'm not Aboriginal, first of all, based on appearances? And second of all, it was very much an uncomfortable position because I didn't expect it. Like this, the time frame that this happened was a matter of minutes. So you never know when it's going to sort of pop up. But um, also for me, like these conversations happen within friendship groups as well, you know, like they'll casually say, oh, I've got darker skin than you, so I must be more Aboriginal than you. And, you know, at the time they probably, you know, meant it as something humorous. And, you know, I kind of for a very long time my coping mechanism was reciprocating that humour, dealing with it with humour because it kind of deflected from how I was feeling internally. And that was something that you know, I kind of had the realization whereas I can't I can't continue to deflect this with humor because then there will never be change. There'll be other people who come after me, young ones who have this inflicted on them. And I feel I feel like it's if I'm strong enough to say something and prevent that from happening to another person, then you know, that's a simple thing for me to do to create change. What what kind of change would you love to see happen? You know, we we had that opportunity to talk to girls in I think they were in grade twelve or grade yeah. ten through grade twelve. What would you love this generation to know in terms of saying those things, which you know, you mentioned the word casual racism. Ugh, it's it's as insidious as um, any kind of racism, really. What would you love people to know in, in the way that they talk about these issues? You know, I actually think young people are a lot more aware than what, you know, the older generations are. I feel like because we've had a lot of, you know, people who have been given a platform that are starting to speak on diversity. I feel like young people are empowered to kind of call that out naturally. I feel like where the issue lies is still those older generations that are set in their ways. They haven't been exposed to social media as much. And, you know, I mentioned in-person comments, but social media is such a huge issue as well. Even in, you know, if I post a a picture of a mural or an article, then the comments section is always something that I try to avoid because there's a lot of nasty comments that are made either because people 
believe that what they're saying or alternatively they know that's that's such a triggering point for us and they really emphasize it and they purposely bring hurt to our I guess spaces so for me I think for anyone listening just kind of have a look at the bias that you have in a situation like we all are quite privileged in different ways but there are definitely a lot of people who are struggling um, a lot more and a lot of that struggle comes from people implementing I guess barriers in their environment and you know I always talk about how we need to see systematic change and that systematic change comes from having the people who are experiencing these injustices to be able to empower and have this self-determination to create change for themselves and I think that's the one thing that I would love to see happen is giving power to the voices that can speak from lived experiences rather than this assumption that we know what other people need. Absolutely. You speak so beautifully on this subject, Rachel. I oh, yeah, you. you you have you're such an old soul, like really. You have so much wisdom. Uh, uh you mentioned before about social media being this 24/7 digital mm-hmm. space if you let it be. So, have you developed a framework with how you engage with social media? I feel like this is still a working progress for me. Um it's it's difficult because the strength of my brand is that it's so connected to who I am as a person. You know, you'll see different brands that are completely separate to the person behind the brand, but for me it's like interconnected. One thing that I value is the beautiful connections that I make with people online and some of my best friends I've met online through Instagram and through that connection of culture, but it's addictive, right? It was made to be addictive. So the fact that my business thrives off this social media engagement with my customers and, you know, my people in my environment, it's it's very difficult to kind of draw a line of when is enough for one day or when is enough because A, the addiction comes in, but then also it's it's a business tool as well. So Um, It's very difficult to separate that from business and personal to stay connected, particularly in times like COVID where we are disconnected in real life. So we, we really rely on social media to connect with people. So I would definitely say I could be doing a lot better in disconnecting from social media. Yeah, I think we all could. Oh gosh, I set myself those, you know, those time limits on your phone, yeah. and it always says, "Okay, your time is up. Do you want fifteen more minutes?" And I I'm like, "Yes, yes." <laughs> yeah. Oh god! Um, given you have experienced trolling, where did you get the confidence from to get back out there again and? And put yourself back out there again and show, you know, you don't just show your artwork on there, you, you show aspects of, of your life in a really beautiful, authentic and humorous way. Where did you get that self-confidence after, you know, having people be dickheads basically? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing, social media, isn't it? Because you see this number on your screen and then you kind of don't realise, you know, how many people that actually is. So for me, I think... Over the weekend, I touched on 32,000 followers, which is quite small compared to some other people online. But if you think about that, that's like a Ed Sheeran concert at Suncorp Stadium. And 
You know, you think if I was Ed Sheeran standing on the stage of Suncorp Stadium speaking to 32,000 people, you know, you would feel that pressure if you could visually see how many people that is. But online, there's kind of this disconnect that you forget what that number actually represents and how accessible your content is. So it's a little bit of ignorance is bliss in some instances. You kind of, you just put it out there and, you know, who receives it, who receives it. But I think for me, it's always kind of coming back to, you know, your why and why why am I doing this? And for me, it was A, that disconnect from that commercial world, which I'm I'm now back in because of my business, but it was also representing an image of someone who didn't exist for me when I was younger. And so for me, it's that idea that if I can continually show up for myself online, that authenticity of my journey and that genuine kind of narrative that I'm creating hopefully will allow people who are still to come and young young mobs still to come that sense of belonging in that they won't feel alone and they'll see someone like them like themselves you know and that image of me won't represent everyone and you know I don't expect it to I feel like you know if I can put that out on the in the world I guess and be who I am it'll encourage other people to do that. And I keep coming back to that strength and diversity because although I speak very much from an internal perspective and about myself, it's not because I'm self-absorbed, but it's because I can only speak of my own experiences. And my why is empowering other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to represent themselves in this narrative, to speak up on their selves because we're all unique and no one's perfect. And my dad always kind of says that everyone is unique and no one's perfect. So that kind of reflects onto the way that I think about it as well. So just really creating an environment where we feel confident enough to be ourselves and to represent our own experiences and speak on our own experiences rather than other people assuming what we want to hear or what we want to see. You mentioned um, what you learned in school mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just, uh, and I think, you know, for me it was probably the same. It was a really um, narrow view of history. Do you think that's changing? What would you like to see taught in schools? I definitely think it is changing. I get a lot of DMs from teachers wanting to, you know, implement culture um, and the difficult thing is, right, where we're seeing this shift in the narrative where a lot of uh, younger teachers are really inspired to teach culture, but their own learnings have kind of been disconnected from the narrative. So there's this hunger to learn um, and implement, but then there's this also this fear that potentially it's not going to be done right. So I feel like for me, the best way to do this is, you know, making sure that every school or at least every groups of school in certain areas have a strong connection to the traditional owners of the land and can start to develop cultural, you know, advisory groups that, A, for young mob in the area can feel like they have a culturally safe environment to talk to and express who they're going to, but also for you know, the non-Indigenous teachers and staff to feel 
empowered enough to start implementing change themselves. You know, when we think about change, we have change from lived experiences, but we also have this allyship where, you know, people need to turn up for other people because if we all kept in our ways and no one's opinions changed, then we'd stay stagnant in our narrative. The power of change definitely does come from this allyship, but that needs to be, you know, strong and confident and empowered and knowledgeable allyship in school environments. And I think just being brave enough to have conversations with people, like the more that we talk about it on all different platforms, I think, you know, I've definitely been guilty of this in the past. I've been scared of asking questions in case I offend. Uh, And I know that I just need to get over that. And maybe I will offend people from time to time just through ignorance or lack of knowledge or understanding. But I think you know, the the bigger sort of goal and the bigger treasure is found in talking and navigating our way through the ickiness of whatever it is to get there, to get to that yeah. nugget at the end. Yeah. And I definitely feel like, you know, when we talk about these conversations, one thing that really needs to be established is, you know, a relationship. I feel like a lot of the time, Aboriginal people feel as though they're being used as a dictionary, right, or um, a tool to kind of gain this knowledge. And that's what I feel like this cultural fatigue aspect comes into it, right? You feel like you always have to be giving, giving, giving. But some of the most powerful change is coming from beautiful, strong relationships that are far beyond this idea of knowledge transfer. and. I think for us now that we're seeing this evolve and people are kind of being exposed to different people, we're seeing strong strong relationships being built in a way that, you know, you are able to ask those questions without fear of being, you know, disrespectful. But, um, yeah, it definitely comes from that foundation of, you know, interpersonal relationships. I think as humans that's where we strive and, from a cultural context, it's no different. Now, I always have four questions I finish up on. Mm-hmm. What would be your number one confidence tip if someone came to you and said, I'm also struggling to kind of be who I authentically am? What would you mm-hmm. say? I would say try not to keep that narrative internal for too long in whatever way, if it's art, if it's journaling, if it's writing if it's singing, any of those things, I feel like express that journey outward rather than keeping it internal because I feel like a lot of my confidence came from shifting what I was feeling from the inside into an output where people could engage on this conversation. And, you know, that idea of feeling like I'm in a constant identity crisis was something that other people could see themselves reflected in. So for me, that confidence came from realizing that I'm not alone in this process. And although we're all, we have all different intersects of who makes us who, like who we are, I feel like that outward kind of exploration and that engagement from like-minded people kind of builds your confidence because you feel like you're not alone. 
Oh my gosh, absolutely. And one thing I've learned from doing this podcast and all of the conversations that led me to doing this podcast is that no matter who, you know, what people have achieved in their lives, they could be someone you've placed on a pedestal or Mm -hmm. from the outside looking in looks as though they have the shiniest life. No one has got it all together. We've all got our own identity crises (laughs) going on. Yeah. (laughs) Now, is there a book that you've read? or an inspirational quote that's helped you on your way? Um, There's two things that I have read in my life that have been um, powerful. The first would be probably Lisa Messenger's book, Daring and Disruptive. So I remember picking that up in an airport in Melbourne after a few months. I'd just gone to visit my cousin actually and had broken up with that ex-boyfriend that I speak about. And it was kind of like the right thing at the right time. It really made me realize, okay, I want to get into business for myself. And, you know, just that entrepreneurial kind of way of thinking was really pivotal. Um, And the other thing is something that my dad impresses on every single person he meets. And it's um, Desida Dorada, which is, I can't even explain what it is, but I would say Google it because um, it's really about how you kind of deal with um, conflict in your life and um, different things like that. So that's one thing that dad has kind of um, really kind of spoken to me about. And I'm actually holding the poem um, at the moment that he gifted to me. And it's actually got a note from my grandma on the back that was written to him. So it's something really special that I hold kind of close to me. Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing. And your dad sounds like he's been really inspiring in your life. Yeah, he's a pretty good dude. (laughs) Yeah, he'll do. (laughs) Yeah. Now, what do you do for pure joy? Something that has no outcome or goal attached to it? Um, I would say hanging out with, you know, there's a certain group of friends, two of my friends from uni, actually, um, Emma and Sarah. Um, we call ourselves a tripod. We have a Thai place that we like to go to. Um, but also my best friend, Emily, just, we like to just be in each other's presence. I feel like, you know, there are a few friends that are kind of very disconnected from the reality of social media and the reality of, you know, the cultural headaches and, you know, not necessarily headaches, but the cultural fatigue that I kind of feel. So just hanging out with them and kind of trying to switch off. Um, I'm always the boring person that doesn't want to talk about myself when I hang out with people. So it's nice to kind of just reflect that internal journey to kind of be around other people. So I would say, yeah, just definitely whatever it is, just disconnecting from, you know, work and online and just being with those kind of friends. Yeah. Keep you grounded. Yeah. Um, What are you working on right now in your confidence journey that's going to take you to where you next want to be in life? Oh, my confidence journey. I would say right now I'm getting more comfortable with being on camera, um, talking about my work, like face to camera sort of stuff. Um, A lot of the time up until now, I've kind of hidden behind my artwork, um, but I've kind of acknowledge this need that people would love to know more about me as a person as well so kind of just being confident in who I am outside of being an artist and you know just working on that through 
whatever I'm doing, I can kind of put my best foot forward. Well, I have to say the reason why you stood out to me and I think I pounced on you and I was like, you have to be on my podcast <laughs> is because your personal story is just so compelling and the way that you hold yourself and talk about your whole journey to where you are now is just super uplifting. So thank you so much, Rachel, not only for being the person that you are, but for all the beautiful work that you put out into the world. Oh, you make a lot of people so happy. Thank you so much. That's so lovely to hear. <laughs> Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 Podcast Productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.